Kids, I hope you have a great time in the back. Enjoy yourselves. If you're remaining, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 27 to 38. Uh, If you've been with us the past couple weeks, uh, we, of course, are doing a, a special series for the Lenten season, and we're calling it the Unexpected Messiah, how Jesus was the expected Messiah who came in a very unexpected way. Uh, We started out by looking at a miracle story of Jesus where he unexpectedly uh, gave equal treatment to somebody who was at the very top of the social ladder along with someone who was at the very bottom of the social ladder. Both people came to Jesus, both expressed their desperation about their circumstances and their position in life, and they received the healing that came from Jesus. Uh, The week after that, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, one that probably many of you have heard before, this teaching tool that Jesus used to show compassion about what it means to love your neighbor. But what was so unexpected about it was that Jesus made the hero of this story a Samaritan, someone who would have been hated by the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to at that moment. If you were with us last week, we saw how Jesus unexpectedly at that last meal with his disciples, that last Passover meal, uh, took the place of a menial servant and washed the feet of each one of his disciples, something that no one expected whatsoever. All these instances, they were wildly unexpected. Jesus did not act according to the script or according to expectation He always kept his disciples on their toes. He always kept them guessing. And one of the things that we've been thinking about is that he still does that today. He still doesn't act according to our script. Uh, He doesn't always act according to our plans or according to our agendas. He keeps us on our toes. He often keeps us guessing with what he is going to do next. And so we're going to keep that theme going this morning as we look at a very crucial moment in Mark's gospel in chapter 8, verses uh, verses 27 to 38. And it's very important because Jesus clarifies his mission and his identity for his disciples. But even in that clarification, he leaves them with more questions than he does uh, answers. He leaves them sort of scratching their heads a little bit. We'll see that as we read now Mark chapter 8, verses uh, 27 to 38. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screens or in the bulletin. Mark writes this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am. And they told him, John the Baptist, and and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. Father, we're, we're so thankful that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, which means it, it cuts deep to our hearts. So, Father, there's always a lot of noise that we bring into worship, a lot of things going on in our lives, a lot of burdens that we bring in, and uh, a lot of uh, volume that's all around us. But we pray that as we reflect on your word now, that you would speak clearly and directly to our hearts, that you would reveal to us more about your glory, more about the, the power of the gospel, and that you would draw us closer to yourself because we've encountered you in your word this morning. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as you can tell from our passage, there is a very clear misunderstanding that happens in our passage this morning. If you look up sort of what a misunderstanding is, is a misunderstanding is a problem that comes from someone who doesn't fully understand a question or doesn't fully understand a situation or doesn't fully understand an instruction. And so we live with these misconceptions, we live with these misunderstandings. They often come when we are conditioned in our lives to believe a certain thing, and yet the truth of the circumstance is different than what we've been conditioned to believe. There's all sorts of, uh, uh, of misunderstandings and uh, preconceptions that we often bring to all sorts of things, misunderstandings. Um, I, I searched some of these things this week. Did you know that Mount Everest is not the tallest mountain in the world? I didn't know that, but I looked it up this week, and it's actually not the tallest mountain in the world. Instead, there's a mountain called, which I'd never heard of, Manu Key, which is the tallest mountain in the world. It was a misunderstanding, a misconception that I knew. Did you know that most people are conditioned to believe that fortune cookies come from a Chinese tradition? Did you know that that's not true? It's actually a Japanese-American tradition that was later adopted by the Chinese people. I learned that this week. You probably just learned that for the first time yourself now. What this bonus knowledge you get in these sermons, right? One other. Did you actually know? This one you might know. Did you actually know that a tomato... You think it's probably a vegetable, but actually it's what? It's a fruit, right? Common misconceptions, common misunderstandings. Well, when it comes to Jesus, we are often culturally conditioned to think about Jesus in a certain way. And even if you grew up in church, even if you grew up within the context of the church, you've probably been conditioned to think about Jesus in a certain way and according to a certain fashion. But often what happens is we embrace what are actual misconceptions, we embrace them as truth. And I think we see that in our passage this morning with Jesus' disciples. 
tells a story about the crowds that are around Jesus and his disciples in particular. And what we see is that the crowds and the disciples in Jesus' day misunderstood him. They misunderstood Jesus because they were culturally conditioned to think a certain way. They misunderstood Jesus' mission and they misunderstood what it meant truly to follow him. And the truth is, as we think about our own selves and our own cultural situation, we often also have the same trouble understanding Jesus' mission and understanding what it means to really follow him. Well, our first uh, section, verses 27 to 33, really deal with the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. And this passage begins by Jesus asking a profoundly important question to his disciples. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Uh, I've told some of you that, most of you know that I do a little teaching on the side, and uh, this semester, sort of at the 11th hour, uh, I was asked to step in and teach a course uh, called called Jesus of Nazareth. I was amazed that there was even a course like this at the university Um, But I was asked to step in at the 11th hour. And so what we do all semester is we look at the Gospels and look at the different perspectives of the Gospel writers as they present Jesus in a different light or in a different fashion. And uh, I've, I've required my students to write five papers. I know that seems like a lot, and I sound like a terrible professor. I've required my students to write five papers. They have to look at each one of the Gospels and examine it, write a paper, a gospel report on each one of those guys. What does Luke say about Jesus? What is the Jesus he presents? What what does Mark present here? What does John present here? But the fifth paper is a different one. And that's where I want the students to think personally about that question, to have a, a reflection. Okay, you've looked at all these different gospel writers and what they say about Jesus, but who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? And I'm really looking forward to reading these papers at the end of the semester. You see, it's one thing for us to research what the gospel writers present, and that's important and good, but it's another thing for us to be confronted with that question personally, to really wrestle with who do you say Jesus Christ is. You see, Jesus asks his disciples in our passage, who do the people say that I am? And they answer Jesus by uh, sort of dispelling the chatter around him and that most people have concluded that Jesus is likely to be a prophet, one like John the Baptist, one like Elijah. In essence, most of the people believed that Jesus was a great teacher who had been sent by God. And even today, if you talk to a lot of people, you ask them, who do you think Jesus Christ is? They'll concede that, hey, this, was a, this guy was a, a great teacher. Uh, maybe even a great teacher who was sent by God. But Jesus puts pressure on that question. He's not willing to let it just be this cerebral exercise of polling the, the crowd and what they think. He then looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Essentially, Jesus is saying everybody has to make their conclusion to this all-important question. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Now, Peter here probably has his best moment because Peter, always the first one to speak up, says very loudly, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. In effect, saying, Jesus, you're more than just a teacher. 
You're more than just a prophet. You're more than just a great religious leader. You're more than an example of self-sacrifice and morals that we should follow. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. This is a profound moment in Mark's gospel as Peter declares this. But as, as we can all see, if you keep reading, as you can all see, while Peter may have gotten the answer right, at least factually, does he really understand the implications of what that means? Does he really under, truly understand Jesus' mission? And we learn very quickly that the answer to that question is no. Because Jesus, as soon as Peter declares this, Jesus begins teaching. It says this, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, Peter, gotta love him, right? Peter, you gotta love him, pulls Jesus aside. I always think that's so courageous. He just declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and now he pulls Jesus aside. Why? Because he wants to rebuke the Christ for what he has just said. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He rebukes him. He rebukes him. Peter's effectively saying to Jesus, Jesus, I know you're the Christ, but the Christ isn't someone who is rejected. The Christ isn't someone who suffers, and he certainly isn't one who's going to be killed, much less killed by the elders and the religious elite of our day. But whatever confidence Peter was feeling in that moment is quickly dispelled when Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Wow, aren't those pretty strong terms? Get behind me, Satan. You thought you'd aced the test, Peter. You thought you'd gotten an A here. You knew the correct answer, but you don't understand what it means. You don't understand what it means. You don't get the sense that really anybody understood what Jesus meant here. That anybody really understood what Jesus' mission was until later on, after his resurrection, when they started to look back and say, oh, that's what Jesus meant. That's what he was talking about. You see, friends, Jesus was and he is the Christ. But as the Christ, he came to suffer. He came to give of himself willingly so that you and I could experience the kingdom of God, so that you and I could experience life eternal. So even though no one expected and no one largely understood it, this is precisely why Jesus Christ came. And that's not only true for his disciples and his apostles in his time, it is true for you and I as well. Jesus didn't come to accrue to himself glory or to bring glory to you. He didn't come to make himself healthy, wealthy, and wise or to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He came to give you life through his death. This was always the plan. From the very beginning, this was always the plan, and Jesus accomplished his mission to perfection. One commentator wrote, which may sum up our entire sermon series, Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. He is counter to anything you would ever expect. And so clearly, Jesus' disciples misunderstood his mission, 
But what we also see here is that they misunderstood what it truly means to follow him. And that you see that in verses 34 to 38. You see, the disciples, we often give them a bad rap, but the disciples, they believed that following Jesus would be their own path to glory. They believed that following Jesus meant that they would later, at a time, become the healthy and the wealthy and the wise. They believed if they just hung in there with Jesus through his three years of ministry, then they would get a corner office in the kingdom of God. They would have a top office, a top role in the kingdom of God when Jesus brought it about. But Jesus is here correcting all that. He says that his path is not the path to glory, but it's a path that leads to the cross. And this isn't just true for his disciples and for his apostles. This is true for all who choose to follow Jesus. Now, I've been guilty of at times looking at the Gospels and saying, you know, these disciples, they, they just don't get it. They, they feel like sort of bumbling idiots a lot of times where Jesus would say something and they would get it all wrong and I imagine Jesus rolling his eyes and, you know, wondering when they're going to sort of figure it out. So it's easy for us to read the Gospels and get upset with the disciples, but they had their agenda for Jesus and then Jesus didn't act according to their script. But the more you think about it, would we, would we really have been all that different than Jesus' disciples? I want you to think, imagine this for a second. Imagine that Jesus decided today, on, on March 27th, to return once again and dwell among his people. So imagine that happened. And imagine you and I had this amazing privilege of recognizing Jesus for who he was. We recognized his identity. And so because of that, we would be so excited and so thrilled. We would, we would sit at his feet for a, the first few weeks, just like Mary did, and, and we would soak up all the love and soak up all the teaching. We would want to be around Jesus day in and day out, because here he is. He's in our midst. But imagine after a few weeks, we begin to wonder, okay, well, what is Jesus really going to start doing things? When is he going to be up to some things that, that we find to be really important? And we might come to Jesus and say, Jesus, when are, you going to, when are you going to heal my friend of their cancer? Or when are you going to draw my parents to faith in you or this person to faith in you? You might even say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, haven't you been watching the news? Don't you see what's happening in Ukraine? When are you going to step in and, and take care of that, Right? Or, or Jesus, what about what's going on in Baltimore? When are you going to fix what's going on in the streets of Baltimore? See, after a while, we would bring our own agenda. We would bring our own expectations of how Jesus would act. We'd have our own picture of what should be on the top of his agenda. Then the question comes, what happens when Jesus doesn't act accordingly? How would we respond? What happens when he doesn't do what we think he should be doing? This is why the disciples were so frustrated with Jesus, because he wasn't acting according to their preconditioned expectations. He wasn't kicking out the Romans. He wasn't smiting the unrighteous. He wasn't elevating them to the place of glory that they had always wanted. And so what Jesus does is he steps in and he reminds them, I think very graciously and kindly, he reminds them that all this is going to look very different than the way they think it is. 
it's all going to look very different. Jesus says in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, in effect saying, if you're going to follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is telling his disciples following him is not the path to earthly glory. It's the path of the cross. It's the path of suffering. And you need disciples, Jesus is saying, to let go of your preconditions of what all this is all about. Instead, if you want to live, you first need to die. If you want to live, you first need to die. When you really think about it, what Jesus is saying here is quite shocking. It's quite surprising. It goes against our expectations. What Jesus is really presenting here is the path to follow him, this path that we call Christianity. It's actually far more demanding than we often realize. Jesus is saying to his followers, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a part of this, then you need to give up your life. You need to give up your agenda. You need to take up your own cross. You need to walk the path of suffering. Neil Postman wrote about this. He said, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. A demanding and serious religion. But when it is delivered as easy, when it is delivered as amusing, it's a whole other religion. It's a whole other kind entirely. Isn't it interesting that the most religious people in Jesus' day, they were the ones who most misunderstood him. The ones who were expecting him and looking forward to him the most were the ones that wound up rejecting him. Instead, it was the sinners, it was the outcast, it was the marginalized who best understood Jesus and his agenda and his uh, mission. Really, that's a wake-up call for all of us, or at least it should be a wake-up call for all of us who have embraced this faith. Have we embraced a faith that isn't really the faith that Jesus talks about? Have we embraced something that's maybe a little too easy or a little too amusing? Have we taken up truly our cross and embraced the path of suffering? One commentator wrote, Jesus doesn't ask us for modest adjustments on our lives. That's often what we want out of Jesus. Just give us a little tweak here. Give us a modest adjustment over here. Uh, Just give us a little tips for healthy living here. Instead, Jesus doesn't ask for modest adjustments on our lives, but a complete overhaul, a complete overhaul. C.S. Lewis knew how counterintuitive all this was. That's why he wrote at the end of Mere Christianity these now very well-known words. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. 
Because nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. You see, friends, we want to love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to our own plans and our own agenda. But instead, Jesus calls us to come and die, to take up our cross and to follow him. So I think our passage leaves us with some really important questions. First, do you truly understand who Jesus is? This is perhaps the most fundamental question we could ask ourselves, because at the end of the day, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But it isn't just enough for us to know the right Sunday school answer. Just ask Peter, right? Because he knew the right answer, but he didn't understand its implications. And so do you truly understand who Jesus is? Do you truly understand his mission? Do you embrace his work of redemption on your behalf? Do you, by faith, receive that gift of salvation accomplished on the cross? But finally, perhaps the most difficult question is this. Finally, are you willing to come and die? Are you willing to take up your cross, to forsake your own agenda, and to truly follow him with your life? Medieval artists used to... um, use pictures and images to um, communicate the truth of each one of the gospel writers. And they often used uh, the picture they used to, uh, for the gospel of Mark is the picture of a lion. So I think if you look at the old book of Kells and some of the old medieval literature, anytime you see a lion, that represents the gospel of Mark. And that's because the Gospel of Mark is really direct and fast-moving. If you've ever read it before, it's the shortest of all the Gospels. But it also depicts a Jesus who in many ways acts like a lion. Direct, moving, fast-moving, surprising, someone who cannot be controlled or cannot be contained. And friends, I think that's precisely why C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia used the image of the lion to depict our Savior. He's unpredictable, he's mighty, he's powerful, he can't be caged, he can't be condemned. Is he safe? No, but he is good. So friends, don't be trapped by misunderstandings and misconceptions about who Jesus is. Make no mistake, he is the Christ. He came to offer of himself for you, to give up his own life for you. But then he calls you and I, to take up our cross and to follow him. He isn't safe, but he is indeed good. Let's pray.